0: we will explore youth development and learning in a fairly controversial context, namely academy football in the UK. Some conversations have already been held in this podcast on talented athletes' experiences in these contexts, including the sometimes problematic cultures and practices in many of these environments, and how young players might encounter a void when they get deselected. But on a more positive tone, What can we say about broader development and learning in these contexts? What about social competencies, life skills, and other forms of learning? Do coaches support these types of learning, and how do they do that? I'm delighted to have Tim Jones, a researcher and a coach, who has extensive experience of working in the field, discussing these topics with me today. Tim is currently a PhD researcher at the University of Stirling, and the head coach of the university's women's football club. Tim is also hosting the Developer Tribe podcast, and he's doing loads of interesting work within the Developer Tribe project. And we will also hear about these things today. So let's get onto it then. Welcome, Tim, and thanks for finding the time for our conversation.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yeah, it's really a pleasure for me as well. And We had a very nice conversation like a few months ago when you invited me to your podcast. So now I'm the one who gets to ask all these tricky (laughs) questions.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a a while since I've been a guest. Uh, So yeah, a good experience.
0: Yeah, it's quite different, isn't it? And uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about meaningfulness in coaching and that kind of things in when I was your guest. And so now I can just throw some of those questions back (laughs) to you. So. You have extensive experience in coaching and now you have moved to also being a researcher and trying to look at those environments and what kind of learning and development takes place there. So I think it's necessary for us to start by hearing a little bit of your story and why you have found it meaningful to start working on this topic as a researcher and also some reflections on your own journey as a coach.
1: Sure. Yeah, well, I'll try and be brief with it. I was born in uh, Jersey in the Channel Islands, a a small place, Um, very grateful and and privileged to have grown up there. Uh, And football was always, you know, very close to my heart and and my family Uh, and then coaching soon after that. So my my older brother is a coach and I spent a lot of time, you know. uh, sort of assisting him uh, at sessions, uh, maybe he would say different. But I was certainly there. Uh, and so coaching and, and teaching a big part of uh, my family, uh, and it really wasn't until much later that I decided that I would try and become a, a football coach full time and, and, and traveled out to the U S to, to work in youth soccer there. Uh, I've been back there since, uh, and worked there a few times in, in that realm. But uh, during that time, I really decided to go back to the university to, to study uh, football coaching, did that at University of South Wales, continued that into a master's. And it was during my master's really, uh, and some work that I took on with Football Beyond Borders, who are a charity based in London, that I became much more aware of social emotional learning as a framework uh, and really trying to apply that to organized sport. Um, and and trying to move that into my professional life as well. And as you mentioned, then I ended up in academy football in in Bristol uh, and I'm working in high-performance football now. So it was really how do I put in some of these values that I had anyway into a context and and really make it work. And so the research that I'm doing at the University of Stirling is actually into the role of the coach developer, but in a similar way, You know, how do they understand their role in supporting coaches in developing their athletes uh, both in a performance way and also uh, as you mentioned you know social emotional competences life skills that kind of thing
0: yeah excellent and I mentioned in the intro that you're also doing the podcast uh, it's called the developer tribe and you're also doing other work within that Uh, so maybe just tell us briefly about that work and and where people can find it
1: Sure. Uh, well, thank you for letting me do that. Uh, it's, it's been going about a, about a year. It'll be coming up a year soon for, for the podcast and, and really uh, a selfish endeavor at the beginning. You know, It was a way of speaking to people that maybe I ordinarily wouldn't have the chance to um, and mostly about uh, coach development, coaching uh, and education. Um, I've even had a, a, a mentalist, a magician on as well to talk about, you know, working with with people and with audiences. So it's, a, it's quite varied um, and it's been an, been an awesome journey so far. The rest of what we're doing at the moment. Uh, so we have a program called Recode, which means co-construct, deconstruct, reconstruct. You put those together and you get Recode. And that's a multiple mentor network. Uh, so people have access to that. Uh, it's a comprehensive mentoring program. And then also an online network, which uh, anyone can join, Developer tribe.mn.co, where we're covering things uh, each month. And, and this month we are, or I am, covering social-emotional learning. Uh, so uh, this has come a, a good time.
0: Yeah, excellent. And um, I think from here, then we will jump into that context that you already started uh, mentioning about academy football and you're working in that elite development context. And I had a couple of episodes with uh, Francesca Champ uh, from Liverpool John Moores University and then with Martin Roderick from Durham University. And they both look at those talent development or academy um, context from psychological and sociological perspectives. And they mention a lot of these problematic things, you know, one-sided identity development in young players. And, you know, we know that most of them get deselected and asking these questions about is it a valuable experience for the 99 point some something something percent who never become footballers so yeah maybe just to reflect a bit on that how do you think about those problematic features of those environments that you are researching and that you're working in?
1: Well I mean I was really fortunate to, to work at Bristol Rovers in, in the foundation phase so uh, I had a group of under 11s that then became under 12s and I say fortunate because some of this stuff was was talked about a, a, a good length between us as coaches and staff and it was an important part of what, what we did but we also then had to balance development of performance outputs and I'm well aware that you know my work in the academy world was, was foundation phase and perhaps it's easier because there is such a, a length of time left in the journey uh, that it perhaps it gives you more agency to work in this space than later on and and that's why I wanted to research it and speak to more coaches different categories of academies in the UK to find out whether this stuff was on their mind, whether they knew about it and whether it was not prescribed, but they were constantly cognizant of developing these things alongside all of the other parts of their their job. And we, we well know coaching to be a very complex endeavor. As soon as you put that into a, a talent development environment at high performance level, your performance can take over quite quickly. And in the conversations that I was having with the coaches, I was 17 or told, I tended to find that they quite quickly would say, oh no, I, I don't know anything about this part. It would be much more comfortable talking about technical, tactical, physical, sometimes psychological stuff. As soon as we tried to unpack around social emotional competencies, they'd quite often tell me quite early on, well, I don't really know much about that. But in the course of the conversation, found out that they actually did know a lot about it. They just weren't necessarily aware of it.
0: Yeah that's interesting so does it mean that it's not so much in the coach development programs or like in the coach education materials i i would guess that those things are included these days as well
1: Yeah i think coach development has come a long way in in football and that the the levels uefa levels have come a long way in terms of providing this kind of stuff, but also that there are additional courses usually run by, you know, certainly UK national governing bodies around mental health, uh, around uh, social problems. So there's a lot more access for coaches to gain this information. But what was interesting about speaking to these coaches was finding out whether they were aware of implicitly working in this space, having then found out that they really don't explicitly
0: yeah and the research you're talking about this is part of your master's research and uh, yeah some of these concepts that we are already talking about we are talking about life skills we are talking about social competencies another term is social and emotional learning so yeah what are those different things and what are the differences yeah
1: well, it's definitely a messy space. Um, I agree, you know, there, there yeah. Are, there are so many different models and you know those who have spent time looking at coaching literature in this kind of area will be well aware of positive youth development, life skills, um, perhaps SEL, although that hasn't made its way into organized sport as much. Yeah. So in... Putting the literature review together for this dissertation, it was quite difficult to synthesize some of that information. But one of the things that came out quite regularly, especially in the life skills stuff was that coaches quite often believe that that kind of comes as a byproduct of being involved in organized sport in any case, um, and that may well be true. So again, in, in unpacking some of this work there were two terms that were used, one being that maybe this, this area is something that could be taught or maybe it's something that can be caught. And with the, the CASEL framework, the SEL framework, I'll tell you that the, the five competencies in a moment, they really believe, and partly because it's in an education space, this is supposed to be in classrooms, that it's a taught process. That's my contention going through the, the research and then my own experience is that in organized sport environments, it's much more likely to be caught. And, and so what what ramifications does that have? But yeah, the, the case or wheel, which was really the underpinning to uh, my, my research, there's, there's five core competencies, self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, and social awareness. And those five obviously split off into other things, but that just helped me shape some of the, the questioning, Uh, And and then some of the answers that I was able to get from the coaches who work in category one to category three academies in the UK.
0: And yeah, maybe just to continue, like we have life skills, which is something that is kind of within sport and within positive youth development framework. And then we have this social emotional learning. So maybe just a few differences. How are they different from one another?
1: I I don't think there are many differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, have you I
0: think, distinguished any? Yeah,
1: um, not not many. And like I say, perhaps just the the perspective is is different. I think that the 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 life skills literature tends to look at it as uh, something that can be incorporated, but perhaps not taught. Whereas the SEL framework, although I've just preferred it probably simply because I've used it in some of my previous professional uh, engagements. It gives just a little bit more information about those five core competencies. So I just prefer it in terms of having a bit more of a consistent framework. So that would be the only real sort of main difference in there. But I think quite a, in quite a lot of circumstances within the literature and within then the professional spaces, people talk about these things where the terms I- I interact all the time, right? I think that most people speak about these in in basically the same way. So perhaps it doesn't matter quite so much what framework you, you choose. I just, for the purposes of my research, use the the case or wheel.
0: And yeah, you mentioned the interesting debate, which is about thought versus thought. So yeah, life skills is what is like more familiar to me from my own work. And you mentioned that, the somewhat traditional way in a, of thinking about these things in the sport context would be that it's more like thought, that it's a byproduct of being involved in sport, that you learn life skills. But now many researchers are pushing uh, this thought perspective that coaches should be explicitly working with those life skills and teaching the life skills. So where are you at yourself in, in these debates
1: yeah i it's it's um it's hard not to sit on the fence uh but i think i i became a lot more clear about this through a term called hidden the hidden curriculum and that was something that i i really resonated with and then hung on to uh when i was writing up this this dissertation and and the purpose of a hidden curriculum is that it is something that coaches can be aware of and perhaps the club that they work for has some frameworks and some values but it's hidden from view from the athletes themselves or the players themselves so whilst it's something that the coaches are perhaps cognizant of although with those that i interviewed it was perhaps subliminal rather than something they were really aware of it's still there it's still within the curriculum so if if we're looking at it from that perspective you automatically, as a coach, I think, start to think more carefully about the space that you're putting together. How are you creating the space for your players, for your athletes to develop these things? And that automatically starts positioning the coach slightly away from the process. So they're not so central to it either. I mean, learner-centered stuff is, is obviously and necessarily very popular. And I think that it fits within this element as well, that if it's a hidden curriculum can we find ways for the players to engage with this stuff and to announce it themselves
0: hmm well those are big questions of what is your answer to
1: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I, I mean i obviously think it is possible and and there would be certain tools that coaches use probably well no definitely regularly and that they may not be aware that they're doing it so as an example You know, 15, 16 or so of the 17 coaches I I spoke to all mentioned how important the transition moments between uh, the cloakroom out to the field or the changing room out to the field or the uh, warm up into the game. All of these transition moments were opportunities for coaches to speak to players one-to-one or one-to-two, much smaller Uh, group engagements. And they all spoke about those as really important moments for them to understand more of the player themselves, to have conversations about this element. And, And that might mean that they're incorporating it with technical and tactical stuff as well. But primarily, they're having conversations about their behaviors, whether they are good things that we're trying to catch them being good, or whether they are things that are more that are more maladaptive and that we just need to address. But that as an example was was a, a tool and a moment that coaches spoke very, very fondly of actually, as, as moments that they were able to connect with their players.
0: So when something is in a hidden curriculum, then it's something that happens in some ways between those formal situations. So like you said, that those transitions that you might have and so on. But I guess what I'm interested in is that in this hidden curriculum, you might also want have these negative learning experiences. And we talked about my existential learning uh, research where I've looked at that kind of learning that is not formal, not intended. It can include positive things, but it can also include negative things. So did your participants, your coaches talk about that kind of unintended learning that might not be always so positive is it something that came up at all
1: yeah it it was and particular particularly with the coaches who had been had been coaches for a lot longer and perhaps because of that were engaged in some form of being a coach developer themselves, maybe a mentor for others, or maybe they've been an affiliate tutor for a national governing body courses, those kinds of things. And it was quite clear that the coaches I spoke to that had those types of positions, or maybe some teaching experience, definitely spoke about this stuff in a a slightly different way. And, And two things really popped out, and you've already mentioned one of them, which is the athletic identity foreclosure. The idea that players just see themselves as footballers and once they're hitting sort of 15 16 hitting deselection times when that happens it is an existential crisis because they've just been told or um, whether that's implicit or explicit that they are a footballer so it's it's this moment of what on earth do i do now and it's those situations where they have been told that for such a long time without pointing out some of the other qualities that they might have. So that's definitely a, a negative consequence. And I would suggest that perhaps it's it's largely an unintended one. And that's why this stuff is sometimes difficult to talk to uh, coaches about, because understandably, they can feel quite defensive. You know, they put a lot of effort into their professional roles. So I would suspect that's why early on in conversations with the coaches I I, I sampled, that they were quite keen to let me know that they didn't know a lot in this space, Uh, you know, to get that out the way first. Um, And actually, again, through the course of the conversation, I was able to say, Oh, okay, so you do actually work with them on their self awareness, or you do work with them on their self management. I, I think coaches are becoming more aware of this identity foreclosure issue. And, you know, some of the more sort of popular media stuff um that that did come out um i forget the name at the moment of the the bt sport uh documentary that that started to bring these things to light it, you know that helps coaches become more aware of it and and part of the problem as i tried to allude to earlier is that they've got a lot else going on so it, it can be quite easy to just blame the coach rather than the wider environment of a talent development environment itself
0: yeah yeah, I mean, everybody is embedded in that, that culture. And yes, it, just like you said, it might be easy to blame the coaches that they are the ones who, who have these problematic practices and so on. But also the coaches can have a challenging position in, in that team or culture as well. But so when you mentioned this identity being one of these central issues and so you mentioned that the more experienced coaches are aware of those things and and they will talk about these things in the interviews. Did they also identify some ways that they work with players in, in regard to that identity uh, elements in practice? Did they identify things that they can do to prevent that identity closure?
1: Sure, yeah, they, they did. Um... I wouldn't say that they spoke about it really lucidly. But there were definitely things that um, we were able to unpack together in those interviews. Um, And I suppose that speaks to this again, that perhaps this space is just not that well understood um, on on a deeper level. But some of the things that they indicated were Just being aware of their family situation, so having longer-term conversations, um, individual conversations about those things. But also setting the space up to allow for social interaction, to allow for players to negotiate conflict themselves. So this again was pointing to, okay, well, we definitely need to know the players that we're working with, and that's quite a common cultural artifact but also that we needed to create a space in which the players themselves not only announce their errors in this space but also are allowed to deal with them themselves to develop themselves with our support of course and we can point certain things out but this is part of that being caught rather than taught that we can through noticing and through observation point certain things out to players but then allow them to deal with it themselves so Let me give an example with with conflict negotiation that how often have I heard coaches speak and I'm sure many listeners about, you know, two players that, you know, don't like each other very much and it kind of blew up in practice and or I don't quite know what to do with them and so on. How are they actually as coaches creating the space to allow them to not only have that conflict, but then also deal with it? I think quite often we shut these things down too quickly.
0: You mentioned about this unintended learning that happens in these environments. And the first one we talked about was the identity development and that identity foreclosure. And yeah, we can talk about what what is the other one that you identified.
1: Yeah, that really came down to selection, um, as in selection for game time. And there was a couple of situations where the coaches were understandably more comfortable talking about other coaches rather than themselves, but quite often pointing to a real uncomfortableness with players not getting enough game time and not receiving enough attention in training as well. Uh, You know, I was told about a situation of an under-19s player at an academy where they didn't play a single minute for an entire season. And you can just imagine you know what what effect that is having on that individual, especially if they're not receiving any support on it. So it's they they were very much aware of some of the practices of other coaches that perhaps are more maladaptive in this space. And one of the reasons they said that those things happen is that they they rely very much on on a success fallacy. Well, what I do must be okay because I've created X, Y, Z number of professionals. And there's, there's a paper that I referred to um, in, in my research where they talk about dubious social skills. And one of the coaches in that paper does exactly the same, points to this success fallacy of, well, one of my players ended up in the England national squad, so he's done all right yet they were talking about an incident that was i mean i don't want to repeat it here because it it was it was pretty bad um you know you can look up the paper but anyone else reading it would go well surely that can't happen so there's there's that issue of because professional coaches in this space their primary role at least has been and in some places still is, to create professional footballers. And as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, just so few make it 0.01% or whatever the figure is. So what are we doing for the rest of these players? But how do we support coaches in this as well? Because if we're saying to them that their role relies on creating professional footballers, but they've only got the chance to produce 0.01%, then of course they're going to focus more on performance outputs.
0: Yeah, I think that's a terrible dilemma for for the coach. And in my work, I was looking at talented athletes in various other sports, but the players or athletes, like if you were in a team sport, then some of them wouldn't be getting a lot of playing time. and, And they are trying to tell themselves that, you know, this is temporary and, things will get better and they can hang on to that athletic identity and that future hope that it's going to work out for me but I guess sometimes the coaches are pretty sure that it's not going to work out for that person but they might not say anything because that would be like um, I guess it's better that everybody for them in a way that everybody tries as hard as they can as long as they are still in instead of you know telling them that maybe you should start thinking of other things I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. And I think I I agree, but I think a tool that came up for, again, pretty much all of the coaches and is very, very commonly used uh, in, in academies is, is IDP. So individual development plans. And this I think has really helped to structure some of the work away from just performance outputs and also to help coaches to align some of what they do to social emotional learning social emotional competencies and then to see how they actually support the the performance as well so again another paper that i referred to in my my research although it was from 2012 so it's a, a little while ago uh, mills et al they they interviewed a number of high performance coaches in, in in football academies and found that Those coaches would point to some social skills, some emotional competencies as things that they want to see in their players. But the disconnect, at least previously, has been that although they want to see them in those players, the talent development environment itself hasn't been developing those things. And the more and more that we move towards players being within that talent development environment more consistently across a week, you know, a lot of the the category one players, that's a big chunk of their time is spent at academy. Then we have to take these things more seriously. And it was interesting that I actually expected more of them, but only a few of the coaches I interviewed were basically saying, well, that's the realm of the wellbeing coordinator or the education manager or the sports psychologist that we have at the club, and they point to the kind of the multidisciplinary team. It was interesting that at least the the majority of the coaches I spoke to, although they said, I might not know enough in this space, they didn't bulk away from, I do actually have a responsibility here.
0: Yeah, I've read those studies as well, that you know, if a sports psychology or more like personal development, well-being practitioner is introduced, then sometimes the coaches might say that okay well that person is going to take care of this and now I can just focus on coaching so well I I think we touched upon many interesting topics this will be a good time for us to stop for the first part of our conversation we'll have a little break and then we continue to our second part so thank you so much Tim thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research through podcast